in prayer. Lord, we thank you. You're the God of all good, and we thank you for the means of grace. Well, teach us to see in this communion sacrament your loving purposes and the joy and strength of our soul. Lord, you prepared this feast for us. And Lord, though we are unworthy to sit down as a guest, we rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. Lord, when we hear of Christ's invitation and see his wondrous grace to partake of his body and blood, we cannot hesitate, but we must come to you in love. Lord, by your spirit, enliven our faith, rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend Savior. While we gaze upon the elements of Christ's death, his body and his blood, Lord, may we think about why he died and hear him say, I give my life to purchase yours. Visit himself as an offering to take away our sins. Use his blood to blot out our guilt. Open his side to make us clean. Endure the curses of the law to set us free. And he bore the condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Lord, help us to remember this this morning as we are partaking of the Lord's table. So, Father, now I pray as the psalmist prayed that you preserve us. For Lord, it is in you that we take refuge. And you are our Lord. We have no good apart from you. Lord, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood will pour, will not pour out or take their names on our lips. For those who run after the false gods of our culture, their sorrows are multiplying. Their misery is increased as their rebellion increases. But Lord, for those of us who are believers, may we never fail to come to the knowledge of your truth. May we never rest in a system of doctrine that does not bring our salvation or teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires or help us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Lord, may we never rely on our own convictions and resolutions, but be strong in you and in the power of your might. Lord, may we never cease to find your grace sufficient in all of our duties, trials, and conflicts. Lord, may we never forget to come to you in all of our spiritual distresses and our outward troubles, and all the dissatisfaction experienced in this world. Lord, may we never fail to retreat to you who is full of grace and truth, the friend that loves at all times, who is concerned with the feelings of our weaknesses and can do exceedingly abundantly for us. Lord, may we never confine our religion to extraordinary occasions. But Lord, acknowledge you in all of our ways. Lord, may we never limit our devotions to particular seasons, but be in your fear all the day long. Lord, may we never be godly only on the Lord's day in your house, but on every day abroad and at home. Lord, may we never make piety a dress, but a habit. Not only a habit, but a nature. And not only a nature, but a life. Lord, may we never forget the truth of the gospel that it saves to the utmost those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never, ever forget what Christ did for us in dying in our place on the cross, taking our place on the cross, bearing the curse 
for the lost, for the gospel. May we never forget, Lord, that he nailed our sins to that tree. And Lord, as I pray for our brothers in Christ who are shepherding other churches, I pray as you look upon those men, like Brother Steve Mays, who I talked to this past week, and Brothers Dobliger and Josephus in Liberia, Brother Sylvester over in Africa also. Bless him and his church, Lord. Supposed to pray for Bob and Phil and Carlton, Anthony, Cody, Brother Josh Henderson, Brother Justin Holland at Mountain View. Lord, we pray for all these men and more that are laboring in the gospel, that are preaching your word truthfully and faithfully, that you strengthen all of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen all the churches, Lord. And Lord, convict the hearts of those who are leading churches falsely, who have false leadership models, who are teaching false doctrine. Lord, convict them of their sins. Lead them to repentance. For Lord, they are in danger of straying souls from the true doctrine and hearing the true message of Jesus Christ. And Lord, they will have to give an account for leading all those people astray. Lord, I pray that you send your conviction their way. And Lord, bless your word as we conclude this first half of the book of Ephesians, looking at this great doxology, giving praise to you, Lord, for you in the church, that your eternal purposes may be realized in the church, that your power may be at work in us. And Lord, may we see as we leave out here today, those of us who, who are believers, the exceeding power that is at work in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that that power is used to bring glory to Jesus Christ in his church, which he purchased with his own blood. It is in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. 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 Let's turn to Ephesians. We're finishing up finally this third chapter, the first half of this book. And as I said in the beginning, as we started this book, this letter and the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the uh, Philippians, one of the hallmarks of Excuse me, these letters by Paul is the first half deals with doctrine, establishing doctrine in the first half of the book. And in the second half of the book, he goes to application of the doctrine that he laid down. And so these verses that we're going to look at this morning as we finish the third chapter conclude the first half of this book that we've spent the last three months in. One thing I like about expositional uh, teaching is we get to study and hear God's word together verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and seeing God's narrative of redemption unfold before our eyes. And that's the great thing about being an expositional uh, preacher. I'm glad I was introduced to this by Bob and Carlton and Ryan and all those other brothers who, who taught me how to uh, teach expository because we get to take our time and go through the text together and see uh, how scripture unfolds. And so when we're looking at these verses right here, we see that Paul is summarizing the first half of his letter. And he's also summarizing the prayer that we looked at last week in verses uh, 14 through 19. Now, this, these two verses are known as what we call a doxology. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, we sing a doxology, the doxology here at church, the hymn, praise God, 
from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above. Ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. That is that hymn is called the doxology. And we're going to see how that ties into this doxology here and why we as believers should look at the doxology and not just something that we do in church, but there is something more meaningful behind it. So this doxology here that we're about to read, it culminates uh, verses 13 through 19. And what it does, it centers on God's power to accomplish miraculous things. So Paul concludes the prayer from verses 14 through 19 with this doxology. So it says here, now to him. So now to him, this is like it's coming to a conclusion. Now to him, having said all that I said, having prayed what I have prayed, now to him. And him, of course, is God the Father. Now to him who is able, some translations say, to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and the church said, amen. That's what Dr. Saudi says. We're going to talk about why that's there and what amen means. So this is a doxology again that Paul concludes his prayer in the first half of this letter uh, with this magnificent doxology. It culminates chapters 1 through 3, which the very first verse, Paul is writing to who? The saints who are in Ephesus, the Ephesian Christians, to the saints who are in Ephesus and uh, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's how this letter begins. And it culminates chapters 1 through 3, celebrating the God who has loved us enough to send his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Then sins can be forgiven and sinners can be saved. He not only brought redemption, he took us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. He broke down the walls of hostility between Jews and Greeks, which we looked at in uh, this third chapter for these past few weeks. He caused us to be adopted as sons. He adopted us. He blessed us in the beloved, blessed us in Christ. He blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. These are just a few realities that Paul addressed in these first three chapters. And all of this is proof positive that we worship a God was able to do immeasurably, exceedingly abundantly of all that we can ask to think. When we consider that it is God who adopts us into his family, we can adopt ourselves into God's family. We can't walk into God and say, Lord, I'm one of your children. No, it is God who brings us into his family. We can't inherit eternal life just by saying it. It is God who gives us eternal life through salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. It is God who does this. It is God who does this. So this doxology sums up all these truths that we study in these first three chapters. Since we live in an instant microwave, instant gratification society where we have short memories, Let's kind of do a, a short two or three minute recap of the truths that we've learned. If you go back to the first chapter, 
and we're coming up to this doxology. We're, we're, we're looking at why Paul says, now to him. <clears throat> Again, we're saints. We are the called ones. We are the called out ones. We are the sanctified ones. We talked about that uh, in that very first sermon that we preached in this book, that the word saint means a called out one, someone who is sanctified, someone who is set aside for God. So he called us to be what? Saints. And we are the faithful in Christ Jesus. We have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have God's grace and we have his peace. And then he talks about in verse 3 that he blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. God blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. The spiritual blessings are the saving gifts of God conveyed by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that. The, the, the greatest spiritual blessing that we have is salvation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We see that in verse 4. God knew before time that we would be saved. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He elected us. We talked about the doctrine of election. God chose us. And we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption. Verse 5. So we are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of God's will. We are adopted within God's family. That's the truth to cherish. That he has blessed us in the beloved. That's the end of verse 6. We are blessed in Christ. That's what it means, accepted. I know the King James, New King James says, we are accepted in the beloved. In other words, we are accepted in Christ. And I talked about how we don't have to be worried about being accepted by the world. Being accepted by unbelievers. Being accepted by those who hate God and reject God. We don't worry about being accepted by them. It doesn't matter because it's, it's, it's fake, it's, it's, it's fickle, it's, it's, it's phony, it's, it's, it's not real. But we are accepted in Christ. That is what matters the most. So that is a blessing. We have redemption. We're, we're redeemed, verse 7, through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We, we talk about this all the time. The greatest need that man has is to have his sins forgiven. And that forgiveness only happens with salvation in Jesus Christ. The sins of an unbeliever are not forgiven. They've been paid for, but they're not forgiven. Why? Because they haven't placed faith in Jesus Christ. An unbeliever can go all they want to. Oh, I talk to God all the time. They can just ask the Lord to forgive them of their sins. They're not forgiven because they're not in Christ. They're not, they, they don't have their spiritual blessing. They're not part of God's family. Their sins are yet on them. Paul says that in the second chapter that they are children of wrath. They are under the wrath of God. But for us, guess what? We have the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. He says, in him we obtain an inheritance, verse 11. What is that inheritance? Eternal life. He works everything out according to the counsel of his will. We heard the word of truth, verse 13, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him. We heard the gospel. And God gave us faith, and we place our faith in Christ. That is a precious truth that we were saved by the period of the gospel, the gospel of our salvation. And we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That means that when God saves us, guess what? We're never unsaved. He keeps his own. He loses none of his. We look to John 6 where Jesus said that all that the Father has given me, I have lost none of them. He said about his sheep in John 10 that we are in his hand and no one can pluck us out. First Peter says we are kept by the power of God. That is a precious promise 
We can't lose our salvation. It's all she's strong. Said is often quote, if we lose it, we never had it. And if we have it, we'll never lose it. We can't lose our salvation. Because it's not ours. It's God who saves us. If we save ourselves, then yes, we can lose it. But because God saves us, guess what? It is God who keeps us. And if God keeps us, guess what? He's going to bring us home. We share the Holy Spirit of promise, which is a guarantee of our inheritance. And then Paul breaks up into this thanksgiving of prayer for the saints. All of these blessings that we see. Then you go to the second chapter where Paul said, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The two greatest words in the Bible. But God. But God. Verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. That is a great blessing. We're spiritually dead. We can't save ourselves. We have no ability. There's nothing good in us that makes us worthy of salvation. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because you're dead. You're worthless. You're Spiritually, you're, you're worthless. You're, you, you can't do anything. You don't have any moral agency. You, you, you can't make any decisions when you're spiritually dead. But God makes us alive. And we're saved by what? Grace through faith. He raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. He said, this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we are God's what? Workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're saved to do good works. We're not saved because of our good works. Then Paul talks about being one in Christ. God reconciled Jew and Gentile together. Said at one time we were strangers. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenant of promise. But what did God do? He brought the two together. He brought both Jew and Gentile together to become one. And Paul spends the balance of the rest of this letter talking about that. The mystery of the gospel. The mystery was that both Jews and Gentiles would be saved. Both Jews and Gentiles have their inheritance. <clears throat> and then he gets to that prayer for spiritual strength that we looked at last week. That God may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we may be rooted and grounded. We talked about that last week, what it means to be rooted and grounded in Christ. It may be to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. Having considered all that, now to him, break forth in praise. Now to him. After all these truths, that we heard. Why, why does the church, why did the early church start a doxology? Because what it was saying was that after all that you heard, the preaching of the word, all the prayers, all the scripture readings, all the songs of praise being sung, the fellowshipping of the saints together, should lead us to burst forth in praise to God from whom all blessings flow. What are the blessings? The blessings of the priest's word, the blessings of hearing the word, the blessings of prayer, the blessings of scripture reading, the blessings of singing uh, praises to God, about God, and for God. And the blessings of the fellowshipping of the saints and partaking of the communion, the Lord's table, uh, together. 
praise God for whom all blessings, for all those blessings. It's not talking about uh, material blessings. It's talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And so Paul does the same thing. He's not telling you all these, all these promises, all these things that, that we see that we have in God. Paul says, now to him. This doxology is the climax of the truths that Paul spoke of since the beginning of this letter. The doxology is a fitting climax to a worship service. I remember I was thinking about this yesterday when I was uh, reading and writing some notes down. Uh, I grew up in a, you know, Greenwood Missionary Baptist Church in Tuskegee on Washington Avenue. I got dropped off at church and all that stuff. And, and I remember, uh, you know, Reverend Harvey, he was our pastor, uh, the Reverend Dr. Raymond Francis Harvey. Um, he was our pastor, and he got up and told a lot. Of, he was like a scholar. He got up and told a lot of funny stories and stuff like that, you know. Uh, but anyway, at the end of church, you know, he would walk down the aisle as we would sing the doxology. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just remember, praise God. I just remember singing that song. I didn't know what it was. It never explained what that doxology, that it was a doxology and what it meant and all those things. So, you know, uh, after the chorus of the last song, uh, we would sing the doxology. We would proceed down that long aisle. It was a big church. And get to the end uh, where the doors are and turn around. And after we uh, sang the last part of the doxology, you know, our knees would raise his hand and give a final blessing. And they say the doors of the church open. And then the usher will open the doors and everybody will go out. He would, one thing he did is he greeted everybody in there. You know, if you went out the back door of the church, he would go out to the street and give you a hug and blah, blah, blah. But I remember just singing the doxology, not knowing what it was. I just remember that we sung it in church. That's all I knew. It was never explained. I didn't even know it was called the doxology. I just remember it was just a song that we sung at the end of the church service. So, what I'm looking to do as we look at this doxology is to see the importance of this doxology and the importance of doxologies, period, from a theological point of view. And this doxology has a focus to it. So let's look at it here. Paul says first, now to him, of course, he's speaking of God the Father. Now to him. Who was able, and I'm reading from the ESV, who was able to do far more abundantly than uh, all that we ask or think. So first it says, now to him. And not only now to him, but now to him who is what? He's able. He's able. He's capable. He is the doing God. He is the great doer. God is the one who does. He is the one who is. And he is able. Our God is not some weak, impotent God. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. God made the heavens and earth and everything in it. This great God calls the Red Sea to part. Just as we studied this past Wednesday night in Bible study in Joshua, the fourth chapter, this great God calls the Jordan River to stop on both sides so that two to three million of his people could come through. This is the God who is able. He's able to raise the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Just by simple words, Lazarus, come forth. He is the God who is able to save, to bring salvation into the world by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins to die in our place as our substitute. He is able. He's not impotent. The gods of this world are impotent. The false gods of our culture are impotent. I think about the psalm that we read in response of Reading the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Why do their sorrows multiply? Because their gods can't do anything. The gods of this world are impotent. 
They are helpless. They, as, as the psalmist said, they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they cannot touch. They have feet, but they cannot walk. And those who worship them will be like them. They will be just as impotent, just as powerless as their gods are. But to him who is able, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is the Lord of all glory. We're giving praise to. The focus of it is God's ability, God's power at work in us. That is what we see here. So Paul says that he is able. And we see this again in scripture in Romans 16 and 25. We've done this doxology before in the sound of blessing in church. Excuse me, Romans 16 and 25, uh, Paul says this. After considering all the truths that he wrote to the saints in Rome, he says, Now to him who is able. There you go. To strengthen you. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Man, that just makes me so excited. It is God who gives us what? Strength. Now to him, we don't get strength from ourselves. Now to him, who is what? Able. He's able. And then I'm not going to turn to this, but Jude 24 now to him who is able to keep you from falling, keep you from apostatizing, keep you from departing from the faith. It is God who is able to do what? Keep us. He said, now to him who is able to keep us from falling, but to present us. He's going to present us to God. Without spots or to him be glory forever and ever. God is able. Paul is letting Ephesians know God is able. This God that we pray to, he's able. And as believers, we must remember that. That he is able. So he says, not to him who is able. To do what? Exceeding abundantly above all that we may ask or think. So he's able to do exceeding abundantly. That means an overflow. But the context, the direct context of this uh, doxology goes back to the verses 14 through 19. That's the, that's the uh, immediate context of this. Sometimes they say exceeding abundantly. Some say abundantly far more. One translation says infinitely more. But in the Greek, it means exceeding abundantly more. So bad grammar doesn't break theology. <laughs> in the Greek, it means exceeding abundantly more. So God is able to do exceeding abundantly more. Way more, as we would say in the country. You do way more. So this is the God that Paul is talking about. And he says here, then we ask or think. That's something right there. We, we think we have great imagination, but we cannot imagine the greatness of of God in full. None of us can. We can't imagine the majesty of God in, in full. Our, our sinful imagination just, just can't do it. One of the focuses of this doxology also is the word all. He's able to do all, above all, abundantly above all, exceedingly abundantly above all. 
That's the transcendence of God. Paul, one of the said that Paul seems to want to use every word possible to convey to us the vastness of God's power as it is found in Jesus Christ. And you know, honestly, the English language is still incapable of expressing that in the full, the majesty of God. He ended this chapter with this great praise to God. Now, when we think about power, we talk about it again. Uh, he's able to do exceeding abundance. We're thinking about uh, power. Of course, it's a power. We talked about that last week. The word power comes from the Greek word dunamis, which means dynamite, working, power. So he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all he can ask or think according to, according to what? The power at work in us. What power is he talking about? If you go back at the 16th verse of chapter 3 in his prayer, Paul prayed. He says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, with dunamis, through who? His Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So this doxology is an answer to that prayer. God's ability, God's power is at work in us. Remember, that's the focus of this doxology. His power is at work in us. Now, back to exceeding abundantly, I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss this. When it says exceedingly abundantly above all, this means that God's power cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stand in God's way successfully. Nothing can stand in God's way successfully. That's, that's what it means, exceeding abundantly above all. That means God's purposes, God's plans for the saints cannot be thwarted. They can't be tempted out. Nothing can stand in God's way successfully. People try to stand in God's way. People try to deny God, try to deny his power, try to deny his influence, but it's not going to be successful. I was looking at two scriptures yesterday, Isaiah 59 and 19, when it says, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard, a standard is a barrier against him. Why? The enemy is going to come in like a flood. He is going to attack. He is going to tempt. He is going to attempt to derail you. He is going to attempt to get you to deny God, to deny the faith. He is going to try to get you to doubt God, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's continuous presence with you, to doubt God's love for you. Guess what? He is going to attempt to do that. He's going to come in like a flood. But what is the word saying? A standard, a barrier, a garrison, a guard will be lifted up against that. Why? Because of that power that is at work in us. Because God can do exceedingly abundantly. Nothing and no one can stop his plans. Isaiah 54 17 says, No weapon is formed against you. He was speaking to Judah in that context, but there's a general principle behind that for all believers. That no weapon, no weapon of the enemy is formed against us. Shall prosper. That doesn't mean that it won't affect us. That doesn't mean those weapons won't hit us. It just means they won't what? Prosper. They won't be successful. They won't defeat us ultimately. Why? Because God could do exceeding abundantly. 
Now back to the power at work in us. This power in us is not for the political realm. It is not for performing supernatural things that these false preachers try to do. But this power is for what Paul prayed for in verses 17 through 19 of this same chapter. Again, he says what? For that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend all that is in Christ. That is what this power comes to do. This is what that power at work in us does. What does it do? It strengthens us. It strengthens us. This power that God gives us strengthens us in the spirit. It gives us the strength to what? Endure, to persevere. It gives us the strength to love God, to love Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, to cherish Christ. It strengthens us to persevere in our everyday life. That's what this power does as he works in us. That these things may be accomplished. That we may be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That is the power of God at work in us. What does the power of God do? His roots are rooted. We talked last week about roots, the ground, roots looking like a, a tree. And we looked at the song, Psalm 1, the man, the blessed man is like a tree that's planted by the water. Man, trust in the Lord is like a tree that's planted by the waters. Why? Because their roots are deep. If we're rooted, we won't be blown away. If we're grounded in Christ as our foundation, we won't be taken off of it by false doctrine, by false teaching, by the false ideologies of the world. We won't be swayed or influenced by the world. That is what the power of the Spirit does in us as he works in us. Roots and grounds us. And Paul said back in verses 17 through 19. And he also helps us to know the love of Christ. Passes knowledge. The love of Christ, of course, is mostly demonstrated on the cross. To know what Christ did for us. The Spirit always reminds us of what Christ did for us on the cross because we must always be reminded when we're soaking and sobbing and having pity parties and 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 saying untrue things about ourselves because of our emotions. The Spirit leads us to the cross and it says, he says, those sins are paid for believe in Christ, that sin that has already been paid. You don't have to bear that debt. You don't have to bear that condemnation. You don't have to bear that curse. That's what the love of Christ did for us. Paul was saying in his doxology that all of those things be accomplished according to his power and work in us. But then he gets to the part of the doxology that is the doxa. Doxa means glory. Like the Greek word dox, D-O-X-A, means glory. So Paul says, to him be what? Glory. That's the doxology part. To him be glory. That's doxology. So Paul says, to him be Glory. What does this mean? It means praising the glory of God. It means rendering to Him what is due. Rendering our hearts delight in the knowledge of the glory of God in the church and in Christ. So when we say to Him, Be the glory, we're ascribing Him all the glory. All of our hearts' delight is in the knowledge of the glory 
of God. All of our heart's delight is in glorifying God and bringing Him glory because it is to Him that glory belongs, not us. It is to Him. We live in a culture where everyone wants to be glorified. Everyone wants to have a platform, social media platform. Everyone wants followers on Twitter. Everyone wants followers on Instagram. Everyone wants followers. Facebook, everybody wants to be content creators now. Why? Because they want people to follow them. They want all the glory. They want to be praised. They want to be lifted up. They want to be exalted. They want people to look to them. So Paul says, no, no, no. He says to him. Who is the him? The him who is able to do far exceedingly abundantly above all that we may ask or think. The him in whom we are rooted and grounded. The him in whom his spirit strengthens us. So it means praising the glory of God again, rendering to him what is due. And guess what? Everything is due to God. We're always debtors. We will forever be debtors to God. There's never a time where we will not be indebted to give God glory. Never, ever. Because it is to him and him alone. So we will glorify God for the power that revealed the love of God and all the fullness of God. This goes back to chapter, I mean, verse 19. And to know the love of Christ, yes, of past his knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we glorify God for the power that revealed the love of God that he just spoke of that we just read and the fullness of God. And where is glory found? In the church. In the church. Look back at verse 10 of chapter 3. So that through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The church is the conduit of the glory of God. In other words, the church is supposed to exhibit. Church is the theater. The church is the showcase for the glory of God as she experiences the true love of God. I'm talking about the universal church. Because the church is the bride of Christ. That's why she is a she. Okay, we deal with he and she. You know, two genders. Okay? But the church is the theater or the showcase for the glory of God. As she experiences the love of God with Christ being center. Because the truth is the church does not have glory in and of itself. Christ is the focus of the church. Christ is the focus of the glory of the church. Our existence here as a, a local body here is to bring glory to Christ. In our singing, in our preaching, in our praying, in our scripture reading, in our fellowshipping together, in our observing the sacraments, it is all to the glory of God. So that when church ends, we can say what? Praise God! from whom all blessings flow. Everything we do in here is an act of worship to bring glory to God. To Him be glory in the church. God gets the glory because we experience Christ. We experience the love of Christ. We experience being rooted and grounded in Christ, as Paul says, 
we experience the stress that comes in the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. We experience all those things as we worship Christ in heaven. Christ is the center. That's why I talk all the time about these false churches, these fake apostles. The focus is all on them. The focus is all on elevating them. And some of these uh, self-proclaimed bishops, the chief apostles, and all these people who, who glorify themselves, they're not about bringing glory to Christ. They, they say it, but they're not. They'll correct you if you don't address them by their so-called title. That's not glory. It is God who is glorified in the church, not man. There can be glory in the church. Spirit of God was given to glorify the Son, and the church is here to glorify the Son of God. That is what we are here to do. The power of the Spirit is not a luxury within the church. We must have the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't glorify Christ in the church without the Spirit's power, because it is the Spirit who always points us to Christ. The Spirit would never point anyone to you. The Spirit always points to Christ. So to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Christ is the sum and He is the substance of the fullness of God for us to enjoy. Is the psalm, is the psalm total of everything that we enjoy. That's why he gets the glory also. Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ is the sum total of our experience with the love of God. It is all done through Christ. And this is what Paul is telling us morning as we look at that doxology is that it is all pointing to Christ and experiencing his love as we gather as a church every every Lord's day. We gather not just to check our name, check a box, think, think that we're doing God a favor by showing up. No, we come because we want to experience the love of Christ together. Talk about the mystical union of the church that, that, that we're, we're, we're one with all Christians from around the world. We're one with even those who are dead. Even the dead saints, we are, we're one with them, those who are already in heaven uh, awaiting our arrival. We are one with them. It is a mystical, cosmic union, a cosmic fellowship that you Everybody just can't join. You have to become adopted into God's family by salvation in order to be part of this mystical union. That's why he receives glory. Because we come here to experience the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us all together. And then we can be like Paul and say now to him. When we sing the doxology every Sunday, we'll know the meaning of it behind it, that it's not just a song that we sing to sing in church. <laughs> but no, we're praising God for the glory of Christ being exhibited in our singing, in our praying, in our preaching, in our hearing of the word in our reading of scriptures, in our fellowshipping together. If people truly understood, this is kind of going off the side note, but it kind of ties back into uh, what we're talking about. 
Profess that we profess to be Christians. Truly understand having good biblical ecclesiology, theology is doctrine of the church, why the church exists. The proper view of the church, what the church exists for. The church exists to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not the everything that the church does. It's not just people just coming together, say, hey, glad to see your face, although we're glad to see people. Because again, we're not doing God any favors by showing up. We're coming to something. We're coming to something mystical. When I'm talking about mystical, I'm talking about some uh, black magic type uh, nonsense. I'm talking about just a biblical view of, of mystical. Mystery that's been revealed, we talked about that. Coming to something that is universal, something that is shared by probably billions of believers around the world that are gathering on the Lord's day just like us. We're all gathering together as a true church to worship the one true God. There is no other thing like this on this earth. Said a few weeks ago, we were going through this. The church is the only true community that exists. Why? Because we have one God, we have one faith, we have one baptism, we have one God and Father above all who is in us all and is through us all. That is what makes the church the true community. There's no such thing as a black community. LGBTQIA plus community. There's no such thing because none of those people have everything in common. They have no common savior. They have no common inheritance. They have no mystical union with people all around the world. They're not true communities. But the church is the true and only community where we have a common union with other believers from around the world. That if Brother Gavajay or Josephus you know, that came in from Liberia uh, five years ago, if they come in here and walk through those doors today, guess what? I can greet them as a brother in Christ. That's my brother. That's my sister in the Lord. Why? Because we are both adopted into God's family as believers. We have a union that no man, no system in this world can tear apart. That's what makes the gathered church special. That's what makes it unique and that is why it should be cherished. There's nothing on this earth like the gathered church. Nothing. Nothing would ever compare to the gathering of the saints. That's a heel I would down because the word of God says so. Are you going to have some Conflicts in the church, yes, because you have sinners in the church. But there are conflicts in the church. But if you sell it biblically as the Bible prescribes, guess what? Peace and harmony comes back. Right? You're going to have disagreements in church. But not over. Uh, important theological issues. If you do, you hash them out. One thing I can say about this church, no one has left this church because we were teaching false doctrine. You can say that proudly. No one says, man, they teach a false doctrine all the time. And that's something to thank the Lord for. 
but you're going to have disagreements. We've had disagreements before. But if that's still in Christ, that's what makes me and my brother and sister in Christ. That's what makes the church different. I'm just be real with you. I'm black, and I'm a conservative. A lot of my friends don't accept me because I'm a conservative because I vote Republican. That's why I said there's no such thing as a black community. Because if you don't think like everybody else thinks, then you're going to be treated like an outcast. Same thing with the LGBTQIA plus community. They have factions within their group that don't get along with each other because of their other things outside of it. They're not a true community. The church, we gather around what the truth of God. This is what unites us. Not skin color. Not your sexual perversion, but the truth of God's word. We all can stand on this why? Because this is God's truth. This is what matters. This is what makes us a community because we're gathered around the truth of God that does not change. And we stand on that truth. And those who don't want to stand on that truth, guess what? They become imposters. As First John says, they went out from us because they were never of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. That's what happened with the apostates. They're not true believers, so they were apostatized. They depart from the faith. They don't want anything to do with the church anymore. They don't want anything to do with Christ anymore. But it proved that they were never what? Of us. That's what makes the church, the true church. The true church is always going to rise. The true church is always going to stand out. We don't have to stand out by trying to be like the world. We stand out by preaching and proclaiming and living the truth of God and being witness to this world. That's how we stand out. Don't stand out by trying to bow down to the world, by hanging a, a rainbow flag uh, over our uh, awning, or hanging a Black Lives Matter flag over our awning. Being like the world, bringing those godless ideologies into the church. No. What makes us a true community is Jesus Christ. And bringing him glory. I like that t-shirt right there that says, Jesus is king. Can you get me one size 2X? <laughs> size XL. I wear that proudly because he is king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? So it just enclosed here. Chapters 1 through 3 comes to climax the doctrinal part of Paul's letter. And so when we get into chapter 4 next week, when we get down to the practical applications of the first three chapters of the doctrine. So we want to close and pray right quick and ask the Lord's blessing on this message and then sing out with our song. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you a lamp and a light. It is a sword. It divides, but it also unites. Lord, the greatest ministry of the church is yet to come. Lord, it is so amazing what you do in us and through us. Glorify Christ throughout all the ages, as Paul said, forever and ever. Lord, help us to see the great wealth 
that we have in Christ as believers. Help us also, Lord, to center Christ in everything. Center everything on Christ in this church, in all the other true churches, and also in our lives. Lord, we say with Paul this morning, now to him was able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we may ask or think according to the power and work in us. To him, to you, Lord, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.